0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Okay, let's go ahead and start. I have a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Our Father, we are thankful for another day you've given us that you brought us together to worship you and to give honor. Glory to your name. We pray that you'd help us to understand uh, the truth, to appreciate what we're learning, Father, though it is, is not technically the Scripture. We, we do believe that it represents accurately the Scripture, and we, we hope we can uh, demonstrate that as we go through these uh, important teachings about your your Scripture. So we ask your, your help and your encouragement as we go through these, uh, th- this confession. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, any questions about what we looked at last week? We basically just... Gave some definitions. Excuse me, I'm not used to... We need to invest in some better uh, pulpits. This thing's terrible. Anyway, I'll bring that up at the next elders meeting. Um, So, we looked... Just some basic definitions. What was a confession? What was a creed? um, Catechism and so forth. Any... any, Y'all understand that? No questions or comments about that? Okay. I just kind of lay the foundation of... What we're going to be looking at in the future. Now, I want to. What we're going to do. What we're going to do this is to basically um, go through. Basically, sentence by sentence because the sentences are pretty complicated and uh, they're very detailed. So here's a. Um, basically, there's two columns here. The one on the right is the Westminster Confession, and the one on the left is the London Baptist Confession, and I've. Boldface uh, certain parts of it to show the differences between the two because they're going to be kind of important. Mm-hmm. I got 25 of these. I'm not sure if there's enough. I'm going to give one to each day. I'm not sure. I'm not sure I got mine. And then I hate to not have my Bible open. When I'm doing something, but we don't have the room on this open here for a bottle and my notes, so. Okay. um, All right. So we're going to look at, uh, like I said, start the first section today, or the first, actually divided into chapters, and then the chapters are divided into uh, paragraphs. And um, one of the things we're going to be examining in the London Baptist Confession is look at it in light of the other two Puritan confessions. We know what the other two Puritan confessions are. We mentioned them last week. A lot of confessions we mentioned last week. There's two that are, or three actually that are Puritan confessions. One being the London Baptist Confession. And you know what the other two are? The first one is the Westminster Confession is a Puritan Confession. And there, there's more, but these are the, the main ones. And the third one is what we call the Savoy uh, Confession. Remember who wrote the Westminster Confession? What group of people? It starts with a P? Presbyterians, Presbyterians right. Uh, and remember who wrote the Savoy? Uh, it's actually called the Statement or symbol or something like that who wrote the Savoy confession starts with a C yes. No, yeah, they were Calvinists, but that's it. Yes, exactly congregations wrote the Savoy uh, John Owen uh, Thomas Goodwin who actually worked on the Westminster confession and the Savoy uh, uh, c- confession as well. So we're going to be comparing uh, these three. That's why I have the uh, the faced text in the the side by side comparison because sometimes those those differences are, are pretty important to us. We want to we want to try to point them out. Um, yeah, all three start with the holy scriptures, the, sort of the epistemological basis for Christianity. Where do we get our knowledge from about Christianity? From well, it's the scripture. So all three. Yes. Tell which is which our I'm paper. sorry, the one on the right, I'm sorry, I'm completely wrong here. I messed this up. This is only the, uh, this is the London Baptist Confession. I'm so sorry. The one on the right, the left, is the old version. The one on the right is the modern version. In fact, you can see up at the top, modern and original. For some reason in my mind, I was thinking of the comparison, but no, these are basically the... Um, Original, the older version versus the modern version. So. Um And we're going to be basically working from the modern, but going back to the original where I think it's uh, important to go back. So um, again, all three of them start with the Holy Scriptures. It provides sort of the building blocks for the rest of the confession, the rest of what follows. And all other sections uh, of these confessions are constructed on the data that is contained in Scripture. So they lay the foundation that the Scripture is the source of our theology. Uh, they, They specify what is important about the Scripture, and then as they progress, they're going to refer to this scripture, letting us know what scripture is, and that it is the foundation for what the rest of this confession teaches. So if the scripture is the basis for our our theology, then it's imperative that we lay a foundation upon which uh, the rest of the confession will be constructed. And true theology is always built on the word of God. In doing theology, we we first exegete, we collate the results for exegesis, and then we try to express that as clear and as concisely as we can. We carefully articulate those teachings. Again, there are 10 paragraphs to this uh, this one chapter, which is rather large, one of the largest chapters uh, in the confession. Now, when I taught this before, I was at a a very uh, conservative, Reformed uh, Baptist church that held the confession as the basis of its church. You had to agree to the confession. So, when I taught this before years ago, I always said our confession, our confession. And if that keeps coming out in what I say, just ignore that. I'm just going back to the way I used to speak about this thing. It's not our confession in this church, but it was when I taught it last. So uh, I I found myself, I was thinking through it, reading through these notes, and sort of trying to lay out unclear parts by saying what I was going to say. I found out I was saying our confession quite a bit. So if I say that, just ignore it. Uh, Now, paragraph one is why do we need the scriptures? Why must we have the scriptures? Uh, And there are two reasons. There are negative reasons. uh, That which is revealed in nature is simply not enough for us to know God. And then there are very positive reasons uh, why the Scriptures are good, why they are actually necessary. Now, the first sentence says this, The Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Now, this is an important sentence because it lays out what God expects from man and how that relates to Scriptures. What does God expect from man? Well, he expects... uh, saving knowledge, a knowledge that saves. He expects faith and he expects obedience from us. And right off the bat our confession the, the confession says, excuse me, that the Holy Scriptures is the only sufficient source of that information. How do we have saving knowledge of God? How do we obey God? How do we know what to do? How to please him how to obey him? Well, the scriptures is the only sufficient, the only certain Infallible standard for those three things. So it's sufficient, it's the only thing we need, it's certain, we can see it and, and know that this is it, and it's infallible. We can trust what it says. So those three things make it the standard of all saving faith, knowledge, and obedience. So what God wants from man is knowledge obedience and faith. It is knowledge that saves us, a faith that trusts in God, and an obedience that follows him. Uh, We see Jesus in his high priestly prayer. uh, He says this, I've manifest your name to the men whom you have given me out of the world. Uh, They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So there's the obedience. Christ came to reveal the Father, and he came to make sure those who hear that word obey it, keep it says, now that they have come to know that everything that you have given me is from you, for your words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them, and they truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. So we see all the elements of these three things, here we see knowledge, I came and I spoke of you, they know that you sent me, and I told them what you gave me, the knowledge that I had, I gave to them. I gave it so that they would trust, that they would believe, and they've done that and it's there so that they can obey and they have obeyed my word so jesus is his mission is complete the three things that that god sent him to do was done knowledge obedience and faith now he's ready to go and go to the cross and finish his work uh so again the jesus who is the final ultimate relation came uh, to do what he came to make the father known uh he came to uh, teach them to get them to obey and to get them to believe. Uh, So there's knowledge, faith, and obedience wrapped up in one statement. Uh, Faith comes through hearing, and hearing from what? The Word of God, exactly. Where does our faith come from? It comes from listening to the Word of God. That's Paul in Romans 10, I believe it's uh, verse 12. Uh, obedience. Uh, Paul, opening in the opening chapters of the book of Romans, uh, says that he has received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his name's sake. Paul is to go to the Gentiles and preach the gospel to them, not so that they could just be saved, but they could be brought into the fold of God and obey him, the obedience of faith. He closes the book of Romans pointing again to this obedience of faith. He says, uh, the revelation of the mysteries which has been kept secret for long ages past but now manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the command of the eternal God has been made known to all the nations leading to what? The obedience of faith. And Paul is speaking here of the Scriptures. This is what the Scriptures do. He was pointed as an apostle to the Gentiles to bring them to the obedience of faith. So the goal of Scripture is not just to convince man that there is a God, but to give saving knowledge of God, to produce faith and trust the Creator and to obey Him. Now, what's interesting about the London Baptist Confession here is that when you compare it to the Westminster Confession and, and the Savoy Declaration, uh, they don't actually uh, use this word. They don't have this sentence here. I think my notes are out of order here. Okay, um, so the London Baptist, the, the uh, Westminster Confession, and the um, Savoy Declaration don't have this sentence here. It, it basically starts jumping right to the uh, paragraph or sentence to, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God. So the, the question is, why do they leave that out? Why didn't they put that sentence there? And it's important because when we look at the, the reason that the London Baptist Confession was written, it, it's rather interesting in that, remember, in Britain during this time, uh, you needed a license to preach. Your, your church needed to be a recognized church by the government, or you were considered to be an outsider or a, an objector church. Uh, the Anglican church had permission. Their preachers could preach. Uh, the Westminster Confession was the, actually the, the council was called or the assembly was called by parliament So that they could agree on a certain set of doctrines that if a church held this, they would be acceptable and able to preach in Britain. And so it was formed for that reason. It was validated, affirmed by Parliament. And then so if you held to this confession, you had pretty much a license or permission to preach. Now, the Congregationalists, they didn't agree with the Presbyterians, so they needed a confession too. So they wrote the Savoy Declaration, which is pretty much a a carbon copy of the Westminster Confession, and the only part that changed is the form of government. So the only real difference between the the, uh, Congregationalists and the Presbyterians are the form of government that they have. So they wrote their uh, creed, or their confession, to show that, look, we're just like the Presbyterians. If you accept the Assembly's work, then you should accept ours, because we only differ in a very small area. And then the Baptists come along and they say, well, you know, we need a confession too. We need to show them that we are just like the Presbyterians and just like a Congregationalist so that we can also have this license to preach. Man, they, they didn't want to be against the government. If they could make a, a you know, small effort and get the government's approval, parliament's approval, it was worth the effort to them. So they, they, they wrote this to sort of say, hey, look, you no, know, we're just like them. We're really not that much different from them. Um, we see this in, in the introduction where they mention uh, that they found no defect in the words of the assembly and after them by those of the congregational way. Now, the assembly is who? The Presbyterians, the Westminster Confession. Those of the congregational way are who? The congregation. That, that's the Savoy Declaration. So in this introduction, they're referring to the, the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration saying, look, we find no problem with these things. No, we're OK with it. Then they uh, they continue though not only do, to express their mind in words concurrent with the former in the sense uh, this is kind of complicated to read so I'll read it and then explain it. He says we chose not only to express their mind in words concurrent with the former in sense concerning all those articles wherein they were agreed. So are saying look we're writing this confession in a way that it agrees with the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration. We're using the same words they do, the same phrases they do, as close as we possibly can. So, but also, for the most part, without any variation of the terms, we did in like manner conclude it best to follow their example in making use of the very same words with them both in these articles, which are very many, wherein our faith and doctrine are the same with theirs. So they're saying here, look, we took these other... Wait one second now. Okay. We took these other confessions that you accepted that you said are okay and we use the same words that they did. We teach the same doctrines that they did. So you really can't object to us, can you, Elaine? So looking at skimming ahead, when you said that the Baptists were good with the Presbyterian mm-hmm. version, right? So when you look at the baptism, it doesn't the only way it could be the same is that the function of baptism, not the Process of baptism, right? Because and, it doesn't address it. Right, and they're, they're not saying they agree with everything. There are statements further down that we we would we could look at too. It, it's just the, the form. the the baptism in the in in the, in this one, it doesn't say anything about infant or. Right, right. And they're not saying it. We, we're. They're not saying we, we, take a, we took a photocopy of theirs and used it. They are saying there are changes, and we'll get to those changes. But they're saying for the, for the most part, that was my thing dying. For the most part, we are the same. And they're going to mention that there are differences. And, and I'll read that in a little bit. Okay. But, yeah, so they're not, like I said, the Savoy, like I said, is almost carbon copy of Westminster, except for the part about congregational rule, where the Baptist Confession, there's a few more differences, which we'll see when we we go through this introduction, this outline. So yeah, there are differences. Uh, And then they say this, again, acknowledging that that there are differences, they say this, and I love this statement here, and also to convince all that we have no itch to clog religion with new words. In other words, we're not coming up with anything new. I love that phrase, clog an itch to clog religion with new words. They're they're not coming up with anything new. This is all standard stuff that's been out there before. But do readily acquiesce in the form of sound words, which has been in consent with the Holy Scriptures, used by others before us, hereby declaring before God, angels and men, our hearty agreement with them. Again, the them here is... are are the two confessions, the Westminster Confession and the Savoy Declaration, with them in that wholesome Protestant doctrine which they, in the two confessions, have asserted. Some things indeed are in some places added, there you go, what we're talking about right now, added, um, some terms omitted, and some few changes, but these alterations are of that nature as we need not doubt any charge of suspicion, of unsoundness in the faith from any of our brethren upon account of them. So, yeah, there are differences, but but they're not that big a deal. I love, again, that we don't want, you don't have an itch to clog religion with new words. We're using your same words, and there are differences, but the differences are are no big deal. They still represent a soundness of, of Protestant doctrine. So my my point here is, again, what they're saying, we agree with them except in a few places and you will no doubt see where we differ is no big deal. Uh, There can be no charge of suspicion of unsoundness in the faith from any of our brethren on account of these differences of what they're saying here. And my point here is this, is that if they're so careful to align with these other confessions, the Westminster and the Savoy Declaration, as much as possible, when it differs, it's pretty important for us to look and see why it differs. Why did they go a different way uh, when they did? And again, this one, one again, starting the confession, that's pretty significant. They, they start off with a sentence that's not in any of the other ones. Why did they do that is the question I want to try to ask here. And, and there are a no, number of reasons uh, why they put Scripture in, in the very front of it. And first one is, uh, it may have been in reference to the Quakers. Uh, the Quakers know what the Quakers believe about Revelation? is that you sort of sat there, they had these meetings where you sat and kind of waited, and waited, and the light of the Lord would would, it, would come upon you and reveal something to you, would reveal an inner light in your heart, and that would be how you acted. You acted upon that light. So that there was an outward kind of mystical experience that stirred you up and gave you direction as to which way you should go. So a lot of people think that it was basically against the Quakers, an attack against the Quakers. And there's there's some evidence for that, that the Quakers made inroads uh, into a a number of Baptist churches in England at this time. There's one, a a rather large, famous church at the time called the Broadman Church in Bristol, and it lost one-fourth of its congregation to uh, Quakers. So you can imagine, in order to to sort of head that off, they put a statement in here at the very beginning of the confession that, look, we, we believe that this is what is true about Scripture. It's the only source Of knowledge of God to to head off the Quaker teaching. Secondly, it it could have been a statement against the Roman Catholic Church. In in 1672, about 17 years before the writing of this confession, uh, King Charles II issued a declaration of indulgence saying that certain freedoms were allowed by Roman Catholics where they could gather together in their homes and worship and and, and do Mass and all that. And uh, it's kind of hard for us to imagine, but that really bothered the Baptists. Because they knew that if the Catholics ever got in control again, they would basically tell them that they can't worship. So these these groups all through the, the 14th, 15th, 16th, and even 17th century were battling for control of the government. And when one church got control of it, they basically shut all the other churches down. And so that their fear was not only would, would it chip away at the Reformation in England, but if they ever got back the power, and there were a lot of Catholics in England this time, that they would basically suppress the... Uh, the Baptists and Presbyterians and Congregationalists. And this was actually happening at this time in other parts of Europe and places like France and uh, Spain where the Catholic Church was dominant. So it was probably a statement uh, regarding this idea of the Catholic Church rising to prominence. And finally, uh, there was a very... Uh, popular book, and most scholars think that this is the reason they added this. Uh, it was called The Authority Interpretation of Bible, a Historical Approach, and it was written by a number of the Westminster Divines, and what they argued in that book, very successfully they drew a number of Baptists into Presbyterianism, was that the uh, infant baptism was, could be proven by way of analogy, analogy of scriptures. Uh, in other words, we don't have a specific verse that teaches infant baptism. But when we look at the overall message of Scripture, when we look at the, uh, the role of circumcision, when we look at the, the promise of the covenants, when we look at the, the promises given to children in the Old Testament, when we see the, the connection between baptism and circumcision as a sign of the covenant, we can safely conclude that we must baptize infants. So again, they admit that there's no Scripture that says, baptize your infants. But the overall flow of Scripture, the analogy of Scripture teaches that we should. And so, at the very front of their confession, they say no, our obedience, which baptism is definitely a form of obedience, only comes from the scriptures. If you want to justify something, especially something as a sacrament, then you better have scripture to back it up. And most scholars that, that study this time and these confessions think that's probably the main reason that they did it, because there was still a lot, a lot of debate uh, going on, a lot of animosity between uh, Presbyterians, congregations, and Baptists over the idea of baptism. And uh, the, the hardcore uh, infant Baptists just, I mean, despised uh, what they called Anabaptists, really did not like them. So this was to head off uh, that idea of, yeah, we, we can prove it, just we don't need scriptures to, de- to prove it. So they're saying, no, you need some validation of the scriptures to do these things. So uh, that's probably what, why this phrase was added. A uh, combination of all three of them, or maybe just one, uh, the Quakers, uh, the ascendancy of Roman Catholicism, and to head off this idea of, we don't need scriptures to uh, back up infant baptism. Any questions or comments before we go on? Okay. And I like what this sentence does is that it sets the bar uh, very high in showing us what Scripture is supposed to do to make clear to us that what's about to come next, that is natural revelation, is not enough. So they place the bar way up here. Then we look at natural revelation, they say it doesn't even come close to that bar. So now we need to go and look at what Scripture does, look at what is sufficient for these things, and and specify why Scripture is. Okay. No questions or comments about that? All right. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) Sense two. Uh, The light of nature and the works of creation and providence so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. So now it's explaining a... uh, A form of revelation, uh, I believe it is, that uh, is, it says, in in three areas. It's in the light of nature, um, it's in the works of creation, and it's in the works of providence. And it says these so clearly demonstrate the wisdom, goodness, and power of God that people are without excuse. Let's look, first of all, what what these three things are that that seem to be the source of this revelation, this knowledge of God. Uh, The light of nature, what does that mean? Was the light of nature? Well, I think it means it's a reference to the inward revelation that, that God gives to man. Uh, the, the idea of a conscience, of God's law in some sense being written on the hearts of men. Uh, Romans 4, or 2, 14 through 15, Paul says this, and again, he's condemning the Jews here, showing the Jews they have the law, they have it in written form, but they don't obey that written form. Uh, it's inscribed to them, but they ignore and disobey the word of God and bring shame among themselves from the Gentiles. And he says this, for when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law unto themselves, and that they show the work of the law in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness in their thoughts Alternately accusing or else defending them. Now, we're not used to hearing Gentiles being spoken of this way. Uh, Especially, I mean, the ink is still wet in in Paul writing Romans 1 18 through 32, where he basically shows the, the utter corruption and condemnation of the Gentiles when left to themselves. Um, even a Jew though, would recognize that that sometimes the Gentiles do what what is right. Um, if you look at Rome and Greek societies, they were horrible, uh, perverted, corrupt, and cruel. Just the, the cruelty uh, of the Roman Empire is, is beyond belief. Uh, the Spartans, all these uh, groups of, of people that we look at as, as moral, were highly corrupt and, and very very cruel. I'm reading a book right now called uh, Dominion, where uh, this this scholar, a British scholar, was an atheist when and started to try to show that, that Christianity is what basically corrupted the Roman Empire and uh, brought about its downfall. And when he got in and looked at how bad the Roman Empire was and, and the light that Christianity shone in that darkness, he came to the conclusion no, that Christianity it, it lifted up, it, it supported the empire and allowed it to persist for centuries when it otherwise would have uh, decayed. So it was a light into this dark uh, corruptness and it's a fascinating book how he describes the cruelty uh, of the romans and even the greeks and, and others so um but still they, they had a law they had a society a structured society uh where things were good at times uh they uh, they had um, an order, uh, they had laws that defended property, there was a moral structure with those things, it was wrong to steal, uh, men and women often uh, admired or honored their parents. Uh, in fact, Paul in Romans 13 says that, that we are the, to honor pagan rulers and, and render them what is due. He states that these rulers, even pagan governments, are, are ministers of God and are to be feared if you do evil, but they're not to be feared if you do good. And he even claims that God has given them the power of capital punishment. And he says they do that for him. This is something that God gave them, a responsibility. God gave even the worst pagan governments to execute judgment through punishment, the sword is the word used there, upon those who do evil. So the idea that the pagans were just these completely uh, corrupt uh, ungodly men. They were all that, but there was still some obedience. There was still some morality in them that Paul believes comes from this light of nature, this conscience. And uh, C.S. Lewis once said that when you look at all the different country, all the different uh, groups of men in the world, whether it's a civilized societies or whether it's uh, pagans living out in jungles or rainforests, he said, what, what marks them out, he says, is not what's different but what they all have in common. And he says you can often see a common morality in these groups of people. So uh, this is what what I think this light of nature uh, talks about. It refers to the divine sense of right that God has given to all men. Uh, again, that was what Paul's speaking of in, in Romans 2, 14 through 15. Um, <clears throat> providence, where do we see providence? Well, Acts 17, 26. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. And who's Paul speaking to here in Romans 17? Pagans. So even you know that God has directed uh, the nations. He's formed them. And every person is in a place that God has determined at that time. That's the idea of a province. So the idea of light of nature, that inward light God gives men uh, to know something about his law and even at times to obey it. Uh, and province, the direction uh, that God controls history and cares for and maintains the, the world. <clears throat> and finally, uh, the third one is the works of creation. And this comes from Romans 18 through 20. Man knows, what God, man knows about God through what God has made. The question is, what is re- referring to? What is that, m- that made that uh, Paul is referring to here? And the word is, is only used twice in the New Testament. So it's kind of hard to get a precise meaning. <coughs> Excuse me, my voice is going. From just its use of the New Testament, it's used here and it's used in uh, Ephesians 2. The idea of his workmanship, poema, where we get the word poem. So there's not a whole lot of data uh, to collect in the New Testament to see what this idea of what is made is. But fortunately, when we look at uh, try to interpret words in the Bible that are kind of hard to understand or not used a lot, there's a number of things that we can do to try to find out what the meaning is. One is that we can go to. Um, <clears throat> so if you have a word, let's say a word here. Uh, and there's a thing called a hapex logomena, which is a word that's only used once. Well, this is a, a hapex plus one. It's used twice. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure there's a term for it, but uh, maybe we call it a hapex plus one. So we have a word, and we, we, don't, we really can't refer to scripture. The best thing would be to look at scripture <coughs> and try to figure out what that word means. Uh, if not, then, then we can go to the actual dictionaries that the Greeks wrote. and look at them and say, okay, how did they use these words? What did they refer this to? And when we do that in the Greek, it's always used for the works of the gods in creating the world. Uh, Almost always used that way. The Stoics use it that way. Epicureans use it that way. It's almost universally understood in that way. But there's a more, what I think is a better way uh, to do it as well. And we'll put that, let's use these as increasingly important um, one is by using the, the Septuagint. You guys, I think I've explained this in a number of classes. Anybody know what the Septuagint is? It's basically the, um, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. Uh, when the Jews were uh, During one of the exiles, when the Jews were sent to Egypt, a group of scholars got together, and they took the Hebrew scriptures and made the Septuagint. And it's kind of a, a loose definition, but there is a body of, of scripture called the Septuagint, and it was basically the Bible that the writers of the New Testament used. Uh, Paul, even though he was a Hebrew, spoke fluent Hebrew, since he was an apostle to the Gentiles, he wasn't going to use the Hebrew text, right? He was going to use a Greek text. And that was going to be the Septuagint. So what we can do with the Septuagint is look at it and say, okay, well, well how did they translate these words? And use their translation to give us insight into how. The writers of the Bible translated those words, what they understood by them. And when we look at this word in a Septuagint, well, there, there's two things we'll look at. Um, my spelling here, uh, that's not spelled right. Poema, that, that's a noun. And then there's a verb called P O I. Poio. And when we look at the Septuagint, these often refer to the works of God in creation. Uh, There's psalms that use this. Uh, Ecclesiastes uses it over like 20 to 30 times. It uses this word to refer to the works of creation. For example, Psalm 91.5, how have thy works been magnified, O Lord? Thy thoughts are very deep. The word works here is this word, poema. Uh, Psalm 142.5, I remember the days of old, and I meditated on all thy doings. Um, I meditated on the works of your hands. The works of your hands there are from this word, uh, poema. So it's used maybe, I think, 20 or 30 times, and a lot of the times it's referred to as the works of God in creation. But when you look at the, the verb, it becomes very, very clear that what this is referring to are the actual works of God in creation. When you open up the, the chapters of Genesis, the first chapter of Genesis, which Paul would have been very familiar with, when it says God made the heavens and the earth, the word made there is this word right here. So the first five words of Paul's New Old Testament had this word as referring to the creation. It's used, I think, 17 times just in Genesis 1, in a reference to what God has made. He goes through, he forms whatever is made that day. He forms it, creates it, puts it in its place. And when he summarizes that day, it says God made this on the seventh day. And that word is po- uh, uh, poison. Um, so again, it, it's clear from what we look see in the, the Septuagint that the reference here is to the creation that God had made. That is a source of this natural revelation that man receives. So now, what? Any questions about that before we move on? Questions. Okay. Now, what is revealed? What do these things, three things, show? Uh, They show, first of all, his goodness. Uh, his wisdom, and his power. Goodness, Acts 4:16 through 17. In the generations gone by, he permitted all the nations uh, to go their own ways, and he did not leave himself without witness, and that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and, fruit, and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. So God let you go. You want your ways. But he didn't leave you without a witness. And what was that witness that God left them? His goodness. You still had harvests. You still had food. You still had rains. That was a sign of God's goodness to you. Uh, wisdom, I, I couldn't come up with a specific verse, but I think it, it's covered in the invisible attributes that Paul mentions in Romans uh, 1.20. Uh, and anybody that looks at the world or looks at ourselves or looks at history uh, can see God's wisdom there very clearly. And then power. Uh, take this directly from Romans 1.20, his eternal power. These things reveal his eternal power. And what the confession here is stating here is consistent with scripture everywhere where we turn, we see evidence of God. Um, We see it within us, in nature. We see it outside of us, creation, not just that, but we see it in the way that the world is governed. It is a sign of God's goodness and care for us and it points to him. Um, But there's a problem with sentence, uh, in sentence three, the next problem. Uh, And what is that? Well, it's just not enough. It's not enough to lead men to obedience to God. Uh, it provide what it basically says is that all these things, uh, they're they're there, they're true. But what they do is they essentially leave man without an excuse. This confession says this evidence has been gathered, uh, and the verdict against the idolater atheists has been declared. that They are guilty. They are without excuse. Uh, there's no argument that can be made on their behalf on the day of judgment. Now, after all the evidence the, uh, the prosecution presents, uh, the defendant floor will just simply sit down. There's nothing that can be said. So all this evidence uh, at the last days will be marshaled against the pagan uh, who took the glory of God and exchanged it uh, for the for the glory of men, of animals, of crawling creatures. And uh, there'll be no charge. No, there can be no defense that they can make against their guilt. Now, the word that they use here is demonstrate. Demonstrate. Um, Look at verse, uh, paragraph three. In light of nature, uh, the words of creation and providence are so clearly demonstrate the goodness, wisdom, and power of God that people are left without excuse. However, these demonstrations are not sufficient. Now, the, the original uses what word there instead of demonstration? The word manifest And I think that's a much better word Because it's actually a translation of the word that Paul uses here Fanero fanero, That it it is a a public, a visible manifestation of something Where everybody gets to see it Um, And it's used throughout the scripture this way Uh, A good example, one of my favorites is Paul In Romans uh, 2, I think it's 28 Where he's speaking about uh, a true Jew and a false Jew A true Jew uh, is one who's a Jew outwardly and circumcision is that which is outward in the flesh. That's the same word Paul uses here for manifest. The same word that they're referring to here when they say demonstrate. So this is clearly demonstrated. Uh, it's proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. All the world sees it, and they are without excuse. First Timothy 4, he gives the young pastor there a list of, of commands or practices, and he says, take pains with these things, be absorbed in them so that you progress, your progress will be evident to all. Um, even when it's softened by the word to know in the gospel in Acts, it's the idea of a public revelation. In Matthew 12:16 and its parallel passage in Mark 3, 2, he tells the unclean spirit who he just cast out not to make known who he is. Don't manifest, don't publicly confess or tell what happened to you. Matthew 4:22. For nothing is hidden except to be manifest, nor is anything secret except to, be, to come to light. The idea of manifest here is to show something uh, among people so that they can see it. So all this evidence is there for every man, every woman, every child to see, and it basically makes them guilty. They don't respond to that. What they do is they end up descending into idolatry, and uh, worshiping creation instead of the creator. So through the light of nature, through the works of creation, through the providence of God's goodness, his power, his wisdom, are clearly demonstrated or manifest so that no man or woman uh, cannot say they did not know something about God. Because, you know, if they read the rest of Romans, what do we find? Well, well there's a dis- this descent into idolatry. These things were shown to them, were manifest to them, but what did they do? Well, they they rejected uh, the incorruptible glory of the true God and exchanged that for an image in the form of corruptible man, of birds, crawling animals, and and, and four-footed creatures. The idea of worshiping a crawling animal uh, to a Jew would have been utterly horrific. Uh, they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator. Uh, the woman exchanged the natural passion for men, and the men their natural passion for women, and burned in their desire for one another. This is a descent that these people are going to. That have this revelation, this descent into idolatry. They did not acknowledge God, and He gives them over to a depraved mind. Uh, not only that, but they, they know the ordinance of God. They know what God says. Again, this, this natural light, this inner light. But what do they? They do, uh, they they, pract- they know that if you practice these things, you're worthy of death, and they not only do it, but they encourage others to do it as well. So those who receive this revelation, what, what, what is the result? Well, there's just this descent into idolatry, a complete rejection of God, uh, making them guilty before God because they knew this, it should have moved them to obey, at least to, to seek him, to call for him, to cry out for him, and it simply didn't. So, they're not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and his will that is necessary for salvation. That's, that's the third sentence. Again, there's not much, much really else to say here. Uh, one commentator says this, uh, most, The most thoughtful or meditative person will not find true hope by looking within. No explorer will ever find the way to eternal life merely by traveling through the wide creation. So, there's no way that man can find God to what is revealed about God through creation. Now, next week, we're going to go a little bit deeper. I, I was kind of hoping to cover this today. We're going to look at um, what is natural general revelation. What do we call these things? What are they? And we're going to look at um, the idea of, of natural theology. What is natural theology? And uh, should we believe it? What should we believe about it? Some people believe it doesn't even exist. Uh, some people do, but, but take nuanced views. So we're going to look at the, the idea of natural revelation, uh, what is it? What is general revelation? Uh, what are its limitations? And then we'll look at the idea of natural theology and move on from there. I was going gonna, to—we're uh, actually—we're going to end today with this, but we're going to actually look, beginning of the day, at the uh, how the church uh, used natural revelation in their worship. It was a big, big part of the church's worship. We have whole psalms that are devoted to praising God for his works of creation. It's not just something that, that was there, you know, to accuse the pagan. It was something there that, that the church should also respond to. And we're going to look how that was done in, in music. And we'll have, hopefully we won't bother the, the wisdom crowd over there, play some music so that we can hear how it was used in symphonies uh, by people like Haydn and how it was sang in the church in some of our old hymnody. It was a very, very important part of the church's worship. So we're out of time, but any questions or comments? You can go if you want, but happy to